0: Today on Truth of Politics and Culture, I will begin with a brief overview of the top news stories of the day. Republicans travel to Miami for the third Sixth Sense debate while Trump rallies nearby and picks up a key endorsement, a deep dive into the roots of critical theory and hospital emergency rooms that are being overwhelmed by teenagers dealing with mental issues. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody. Welcome in. If you're listening on Facebook Live or watching Facebook Live today, thank you very much. Appreciate that. And for the podcast listeners, thanks for tuning in wherever you are. Don't forget to leave me a good review before the day is done. We're going to look at top news stories here in a second and preview tomorrow's show. And we got a lot to do today, so we're going to get right to it here. It I do appreciate you tuning in, appreciate you listening. Um, and talking about tomorrow's show, you know, it's occurred to me that when you think about Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, James Biden, all of the Biden family, and all of the things that have come out in the news, the information that's being used to determine whether or not uh, to impeach President Biden over in the House, it's it's been dripping out. I mean, we get one story, we find out about all these banks uh, we find that are involved, we find about out about all these shell companies. Where money's being is kind of flowing through to the Biden family, Uh, we find out about uh, Chinese agencies that are sending money to the Bidens. Uh, It's it and it can be kind of confusing, and it kind of reminds me of of somebody sitting in a chair and they're knitting, and you can't really figure out what they're knitting until you get enough of the. Uh, of the knitting done to see the picture, or maybe putting together a jigsaw puzzle where you you don't know what the picture is until you get enough of the pieces put in place. So tomorrow, um, I'm going to take some time and walk through where we are on the Joe Biden corruption investigation and whether or not he should be impeached. And we're just going to make it a very factual thing. I mean, it's you know we need to look at the evidence and make a fair assessment with using common sense and rules of evidence as to what we think has happened here with the Bidens, uh, not only with Joe Biden, but Hunter Biden, and of course, the whole Biden family, which now is in play. So we're going to, we're going to do that. I'm going to bring you up to date on the latest here in just a minute, but tomorrow, I'm not going to linger over it because tomorrow uh, we're really going to do, as I say, a deep dive. We're going to look into the history and kind of connect the dots for you so that maybe this uh, this, this weaving, this tapestry, this picture is going to come together in some kind of way that you can make sense of. I'm, I'm doing this for myself as much as anything else because I need to figure out sort of what's what uh, when it comes to the Bidens and how far this thing has gone and how deep it goes. Uh, first, though, we need to tell you that Truth in Politics and Culture is being brought to you today by the McCravey Newland Sturkey Clarity Law Firm. McCravey, Newland, Sturkey, and Clarity have a proven track record of settling and trying cases in South Carolina. They have over 25 years of experience and knowledge that has helped thousands of people just like you. So if you're looking for experienced and successful personal injury lawyers in South Carolina who will fight for you, go to McCraveyLaw.com. That's M-C-C-R-A-V-Y-Law.com to find out how the McCravey, Newland, Sturkey, Clarity Law Firm will always exceed your expectations. They know South Carolina law, and they know how to get results for you. Why not call them today? Why? Well, because if you call them and tell them your, the situation that you have, describe it for them, they'll give you a free consultation. I, I mean, there's not a whole lot of things left in life that's that's free. I mean, this show is free, this podcast, so it's true that the best things in life are still free, but so is a consultation with McCravey, Newland, uh, Sturkey, and Clarity. So give them a call. 833-245-6565 today. That's 833-245-6565. Or just go to McCraveyLaw.com. McCravey, Newland, Sturkey, Clarity Law Firm is ready to represent you. All right. Um, An overview of the news today, one of the first big stories that we're going to talk about is the fact that subpoenas are being issued by uh, Comer and the Oversight Committee to pretty much everybody with the last name Biden. I mean, it's not going to get everybody, but it's going to get the, the key players. This is according to the New York Post, and this happened yesterday. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer has issued subpoenas for Hunter and James Biden's personal and business bank records as part of the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Quote, from day one of our investigation of Joe Biden's abuse of public office, we've followed the money, and and that continues with today's subpoenas for Hunter and James Biden's bank records. Comer said in a statement, bank records don't lie, and coupled with witness testimony that revealed that Joe Biden abused his public office for his family's financial gain. A subpoena for Hunter Biden's longtime business partner, uh, Eric Sherwin's bank records, has also been issued. Business entities associated with the president's 53 year old son named in the subpoena were Aswako PC, uh, Aswako LLC, and SCAN, I cannot pronounce this, S K A N E A T E L E S, Scanatels. Okay, that's the best I can do. Those associated with his 74 year old brother, were the Lion Hill Group LLC and JBBSR Incorporated. So now this is some of these companies that nobody can figure out really what they're doing or what purpose they have, or are they turning a profit? Or are they making, uh, turning out commerce, producing something? Um, and so this is these subpoenas are going to be important. The House Oversight Committee has uncovered evidence that the Biden family, including first son Hunter Biden and first brother James Biden and their business associates have raked in over—get ready for this number. You've probably heard it before, but every time I hear it or see it in print, it it just astounds me. $24 million raked in from foreign companies and foreign nationals in Ukraine, Russia, Kazakhstan, Romania, and China, all between 2014 and 2019. So, like I said— tomorrow we're gonna to do a deep dive because you just it, it's hard to to follow all this and figure out, okay, how do we get to this point where the you, we've actually uh, we've actually been able to e- issue these subpoenas. are we going to have an impeachment trial uh, of Joe Biden? Um, I think after you hear the, how this is laid out tomorrow, Um, that it it will help you kind of connect the dots and figure out exactly what's going on. All right, uh, next story. Rashida Tlaib was censured by Congress. Twenty-two Democrats joined Republicans to censure her. And, of course, she's pushing back. She's saying, look, um, you know, all I did was call for a ceasefire. And, of course, she's done much more than that. She's participated in... In rallies, she's repeated the phrase from the river to the sea, which I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that on this program, but l- l- let me just say from the river to the sea means Palestine is in existence. There's an Arab nation where Israel exists today. Okay, that's what that means. You can say whatever you want to say about it, you can try to sugarcoat it, you can try to redefine the terms, the phrase. Any way, you, any way you like, the history of that phrase is clear. And when you think about its meaning, meaning free Palestine from the river to the sea, well, uh, from the river to the sea is where Israel, the country of Israel, is uh, currently located. So if you're going to replace Israel from the river to the sea, that means Israel doesn't exist and Palestine does. So before we get off on this idea that that's an innocuous statement, Uh, As some people are trying to say, and basically try to sell the idea that it doesn't mean what it means. It's a statement that is used by Hamas regularly to describe what they want to see happen to Israel. So please let's let's understand that in in the beginning. And Rashida Tlaib has used that phrase. She uses it regularly. Representative Marjorie Greene, Republican from Georgia, of course. Unless you've been Living on Mars for the past year, you know who Marjorie Green is. Actually, last couple of years, reintroduced a resolution this week that would censure who she calls terrorist Talib. <laughs> you you got to give you got to give Marjorie Green a little bit of credit for creativity here. Um, I guess she's parroting Trump on coming up with nicknames for people for allegedly inciting and participating in an illegal anti-Israel demonstration near the Capitol on October 18th. It was at that rally that Tlaib falsely blamed the Israeli-, Israeli military for a hospital strike. She said killed Palestinian children. The blast was actually caused by a misfired rocket launched by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And that's a fact that Tlaib claims is a conspiracy theory. Well, it's a, it's a fact that's been confirmed by U.S. intelligence, Israeli intelligence. In fact, anybody with any intelligence can look at the pictures and come up with the uh, the conclusion of what actually happened with that hospital attack. And she's, she's of course, been hanging on to it. To push back against representatives who wish to censor Talib. Talib said her perspective as the only Palestinian-American representative is needed now more than ever. So... because she's Palestinian-American. She is able to speak to this any way she pleases. And the fact that she's Palestinian-American means you can't criticize her. You can't question her statements. She can say anything she likes, and that has to stand because of who she is. And this is all part of the critical theory that we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. But she was censured, um, and I mean, censure is not that big of a deal, other than it's embarrassing. It uh, it can cause members of the the House to look at Rashida Tlaib maybe with a little bit more suspicion. But some of the things that that were said uh, when this thing went down, I mean, yesterday there were people defending her. Corey Bush, one of the squad members, went off, and of course she somebody had to be first. Somebody had to say that it was racist. Uh, because everything's racist that you don't agree with, it, and particularly if you're a minority. If you're members of a minority group and you can say that something is racist, that immediately puts everybody on the defensive. Uh, and and this is what Cori Bush did yesterday. In fact, she was a little bit unhinged as she was saying it. That it's not surprising because this is the place where our black and brown staff members repeatedly speak of experiencing racism and sexism, Islamophobia, get pushed off in of elevators, xenophobia and more right here in this workplace. OK, now that's um, as I said, that's Corey Bush um, just becoming extremely emotional over this pounding. Uh, of course, you were the gavel pounding I'm behind her. Um, th- it because she wasn't really talking about the whole purpose of Rashida Talib being censured, she got off on the fact that it was racist to censure her. And anytime you disagree with something, somebody, somebody does something to you that you don't like. If you can somehow paint that as racism, then you're going to have the upper hand in the debate in our culture today. But it didn't work for for Rashida Talib because. 22 democrats joined republicans in voting to censure her. Now that's that is significant when you've got members of your own party that are willing to go on the record and say that what she did was wrong. Democrats are starting to realize that if they go down if they go down this road of embracing slogans that are parroted by Hamas or they begin to parrot slogans that are used by Hamas if they go down this road of refusing to rein in people who are participating in anti-Israel, anti-Semitic behavior, uh, it's going to be it's going to be bad news for the Democrat Party. So they're actually starting to try to, to move in a direction that would be uh, at least in a sensible direction, holding some of these people accountable. All right, another story from yesterday. U.S. strikes Iranian military facilities in Syria. This is coming from Ryan Saavedra. At the Daily Wire, U.S. forces uh, struck weapons facilities used by Iran and Syria on Wednesday in response to continued attack on forces throughout the region. Now, what what's interesting about this is that, the you know, I, I suppose there's some military intelligence here that we don't know about, and quite frankly, we don't need to know about because if we know it, everybody else knows it. But they struck a, a military weapons facility in Syria after— the Houthis in Yemen shot down a drone, uh, a 30 million dollar drone that was in that was operating in international over international waters. It was monitoring activity by the Houthis, and they shot it down. Um, Iran and its terrorist proxy groups throughout the region have launched 22 attacks against U.S. forces in Iraq, and another 18 attacks against U.S. forces in Syria leading to 46 US soldiers being injured, including 25 who have been diagnosed with traumatic traumatic, excuse me, brain injuries. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said in a statement that the self-defense strikes were on a facility in eastern Syria used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and affiliated groups. It was conducted by two US F-15s against a weapons storage facility. So well, for whatever reason, that was sort of the retaliation for ongoing attacks, I guess, including the shooting down of a U.S. drone drone by the Houthis in Yemen. It's going to be complicated if the United States tries to go into Yemen or uh, launch attacks in Yemen uh, against the Houthi rebels because, of course, the Houthis are backed by Iran, just like Hezbollah, just like Hamas. Uh, they're proxies of Iranian terror and the, but this is, this is an area that the Saudis are having to deal with, and it, it would certainly raise tensions and cause a lot more angst in the Middle East if the United States were to actually have to go into Yemen. It's one thing to strike into Syria. Been there, done that. Uh, it's one thing to strike into Lebanon. Been there, done that. It's one thing to uh, strike at Hamas. But if you start moving into Yemen with military strikes, that would definitely be considered an escalation. So I suppose that may be part of the reason, although I don't know for sure, but it could be part of the reason that they actually moved in and decided to take out this facility in Syria. Uh, Evidently, there's some connection to um, what happened with the U.S. drone. Maybe that's where the uh, military ordnance that was used or the, the tactical weaponry exist to be able to shoot down a drone. Those, those things are, they have pretty amazing self-defense capability. Uh, they have a pretty amazing capability to uh, be able to avoid being shot down. So shooting one down is a big deal. All right, let's talk about the debate. I called it the sixth sense debate in the lead up to the show today. And the reason is because if you remember the movie with Bruce Willis, Um, he's dead, and he's the only one that apparently doesn't know he's dead. Uh, Well, there's a little boy that is talking to him, and I think he gets it. But, you know, it's it's been a long time since I've seen the movie. But the point is that someone's dead, and they don't realize it, and you don't realize it until the end of the movie. Well, when it comes to the Republican nomination for president, we're we're getting close to the end of the movie here Um, because these Republican candidates— are trying to convince everybody that they're still living, that their campaigns are still alive. And so we have this third debate. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I, I think the debates are important simply because we need to hear these people. We need to hear what the Republican Party used to sound like um, as as well as what it is today. We need to hear strong national defense. We need to hear a full-throated defense of life, even, even though um, the abortion issue is working right now against Republicans. However, like I pointed out yesterday, it's not working against Republican candidates. It may be losing when it gets on a ballot as a referendum, but pro-life Republicans are still winning elections. And we need to focus on that. We need to keep that in mind um, as we go forward. Before we just panic and say, "Okay, we got to get away from the abortion issue." But last night, the candidates, uh, you know, and, and the reason I say sixth sense, and is because when you do something like you you have a debate, you have five candidates that are excellent candidates. Any one of those candidates, maybe with the exception of Chris Christie, would make uh, I think a really good president of the United States. When you've got these candidates representing the Republican Party coming out and clearly enunciating Republican principles that have been the bedrock of the party since before Ronald Reagan, but Ronald Reagan brought them back into fashion. And and this debate last night kind of reminded me of that. And it's, but again, it, it doesn't matter because the Trump has a 50- to 60-point lead nationally. He's got at least a 30-point lead in the early states they are going to be voting. And that's been the case. since. And, and now we're through the third debate, and, and it's going to continue. I mean, there was nothing last night that says that all of a sudden, Ron DeSantis is going to pick up 20 points. Or Nikki Haley is going to leapfrog over Ron DeSantis and suddenly be a threat to the fact that Trump could get the nomination. that None of that is going to happen. There, there's going to be some writing today about which one of these candidates did the best job. I think, except for Vivek Ramaswamy, I think they all did pretty well uh Ramaswamy had his moment when he went after the moderators and kind of went after the news media uh that was a and and he talked about Republicans being losers and, and he would change that I mean that was kind of a big moment for him uh but of course the one that everybody talked about is when Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley threw down over Nikki Haley's daughter and whether or not she uses TikTok but before we get to that I want to talk about the the pro life question um I thought Ron DeSantis did a good job last night when he was asked about what is it that Republicans are going to have to do going forward as in light of the referendum loss in in Ohio and DeSantis stuck to his guns as far as being pro-life. Here it is.
1: Well, I stand for a culture of life, and uh, I understand that it's important that everyone gets a shot. I- I'm reminded of a story about a-, a young mother who was struggling in Jamaica about 40 years ago, 45 years ago. She was counseled to-, to not have a baby because she was poor. Baby wouldn't have opportunity, and she came close to have an abortion, but she decided to have the baby born poor in Jamaica. And the reason I know that story is because that baby girl ended up emigrating to the state of Florida. Uh, becoming a lawyer and a judge, and I appointed her to the Florida Supreme Court in August of 2022. We're better off when everybody counts. Uh, we're better off when we can promote a culture of life. At the same time, I understand that some. All
0: right, I, w- I want to hang on. I want to I jump in here for a second. Here's the money line. We're better off when everybody counts. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a biblical worldview. That is truth in politics and culture. It is true that we're better off as a society, we're better off as a country, we're better off as a world when we get to the point that we understand that life is precious, it is made in the image of God, and that every life matters. It, it's That is such an important thing that the Republican Party needs to hang on to. And it's refreshing to me to hear such a clear annunciation of this all right here's here's some more
1: states are doing it a little bit different. Texas is not going to do it the same as New Hampshire. Iowa is not necessarily going to do it the same uh, as Virginia. So you got to work from the bottom up. Uh, you got to do a better job on these referenda. I think of all the stuff that's happened to the pro-life cause, uh, they have been caught flat-footed on these referenda, and they have been losing the referenda. A lot of the people who are voting for the referenda are Republicans who would vote for a Republican candidate. So you got to understand how to do that. But let's just be clear. The Democrats have taken a Position, they will not identify the point at which there should be any protection all the way up until birth. That is wrong, and we cannot stand for that.
0: Okay, this is just good stuff. I mean, I I know I, I it like I said that these debates are. Um, I, I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Rich Lowry over at National Review that said, "Look, this is irrelevant stuff." Uh, Trump had a rally just down the road. He had thousands of people there. Picked up an endorsement um, and that was really important. We're going to get to that in just a minute, but, but I just want to say that this, that's why this is still important, even though maybe the debates are not going to shift the debate, the big debate about who the candidate's going to be, at least not yet, uh, and maybe not ever, but I think it's important to hear people make this case. I like it when Ron DeSantis stands up and makes a reasoned case based on the fact that everybody matters as to why we need to be pro-life in the Republican Party. And, uh, and quite frankly, calling out people about the referenda, look, I, I think the referenda, there, I'm sure more could have been done in Ohio, but we've got to be clear-eyed, as Nikki Haley said many times last night, about what what is actually happening, and that is that the American people have bought into the lies of Planned Parenthood that are echoed in their echo chamber in the legacy media. And a lot of people have decided that life, because of personal autonomy, personal autonomy is much more important than individual life. My um, uh, supposed uh, autonomy over my body is what women are saying, is I'm I'm not gonna have anybody telling me what I can or can't do. Uh, But yet the law says, that just because you have autonomy over your body, you can't go out and take the life of another human being. And that's what abortion does. And we've failed to make that point clear enough in our society today. And we're going to continue to lose referenda if we don't come to the point where we can make a reasoned argument in much the same way that Ron DeSantis just did. All right, Nikki Haley um, had a good answer last night, really, except here's the difference, and you're going to hear this. Haley talks about abortion in terms of we need to let all the states make their decisions, and and I get that, but she's not making, she's talking about life and abortion in political terms, whereas Desantis is talking about life almost in theological terms I mean when he talks about the the inherent worth of the individual that's making a philosophical theological foundational argument that's needed and Nikki Haley did fine I mean except that she's kind of hedging a little bit um, on this issue because she's concerned about what the referenda are doing in these states and what polling reveals about whether or not the Republican party is still pro-life here's Hayley. Haley's, part of Haley's answer
1: there are some states that are going more on the pro-life side I welcome that there's some states that are going more on the pro-choice side I wish that wasn't the case but the people decided no Republican president can ban abortions any more than a Democrat president can ban these state laws so let's find consensus
0: okay uh, all right as far as that goes that's that's pretty that's absolutely true um it a, a president can can't ban abortion a president and and thankfully a Democrat president president now can't interfere directly with what's going on in the states. But now hear this because this is important. President Biden the presidency at the executive branch the way the laws are enforced or carried out that's that's part of what the executive branch does and here it's an important part it's the main part. Um, and, and President Biden has not been shy about using the federal government to do everything it can to interfere with state laws that have uh, regulated or restricted abortion. And so it's, it's not exactly true. While it is true that no president can unilaterally make a decision about life or about opening up more abortions, but presidents do have, through executive uh, orders And by the fact that they direct the the multitude of government agencies out there that run our lives every day, which is one of the big problems that needs to be addressed, but they can direct those agencies to make it difficult for states that want to to be pro-life. And so it does matter about, this is still an issue at the level of the presidency where it matters. And we need to make sure we have pro-life people who are running the country, who understand, because that's a basic understanding of human rights, right? I mean, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, it starts with life. And I know I say that people say that all the time, but for whatever reason, it's not sinking in liberty and the pursuit of happiness doesn't mean much if you're dead. And if you never have a chance to live, then the liberty and the pursuit of happiness means nothing That is to have life outside of the womb. Life begins at conception. So you're alive uh, when you are conceived. It's just that it's very difficult to get the rest of the culture to come to an understanding of all that. All right, I wanted to—yeah, let's see. I think this is the right place. One of the biggest changes last night was when Vivak Ramaswamy went after Nikki Haley's daughter for being on— Uh, TikTok, there was a a, a pretty good discussion last night about uh, whether TikTok is dangerous or whether we need to ban it because it's a Russian propaganda tool, which is, of course, what it is. Um, and and we don't want to we don't want to ban it because so many millions of people are using it, but it's a horrible influence. I mean, it's the sewer of social media. That's TikTok, and and I know people people are gonna say, well, you're just an old man. You don't get it. You don't understand. Yes, I do understand. Believe me, I understand why TikTok is so popular in a culture that's become a sewer because you know, you kind of recognize your own. And, and if, you're, if you're living with these kind of uh, philosophies and worldviews, then you want to hear something and see something constantly that reinforces it. And that's what TikTok has become. So anyway, Ramaswamy and Haley got into it, uh, and Haley basically called him scum.
1: Well, I, I, I want to laugh at why Nikki Haley didn't answer your question, which is about looking at families in the eye. In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your else, voice. Your daughter, the next generation of Americans are using it. And that's actually the point. You have her supporters cropping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. You're just The scum. easy answer is actually...
0: Yeah. Well, here's here's, here's the thing. Um, that was not just her supporters propping her up last night. Uh, that was people that were disgusted that Vivek Ramaswamy would try to bring Nikki Haley's daughter into this. Uh, that, I don't know who is advising him, but one of the things that he needs to understand, you do not, under any circumstances, go after family members, particularly the children. I mean, look, I know that's happened to Trump. It's and, and, of course, the legacy media, they don't care about the rules. They just want to get Trump. But but when it comes to in, in a, a debate like this um, and you're trying to make a point and you try to make a make it by going after the candidate's children, uh, that's not going to work. Um, Ramaswamy's getting a lot of pushback on this today, and he should get a lot of pushback. So the other big thing in the debate last night, there were a lot of questions about foreign policy. And, of course, the reason for that is because we've got such a mess going on in the world with the war in Ukraine. Most of the candidates said when it comes to the war in Ukraine that the Ukrainians need to win. Ramaswamy got in trouble because he made some kind of comment about Zelensky being a Nazi. And then the campaign had to come back, Uh, uh, a clown in cargo pants, I think he said – and, and the campaign had to come out and say, look, we were not, he was not saying that Zelensky is a Nazi. That would definitely be a, a problem since Zelensky is Jewish. But he, he was trying to say that um, Zelensky stood in some type of meeting in Canada when someone who uh, the Jewish community said was a Nazi was being recognized. And that was the reference. Well, um, when you hear what he said, it's a little bit hard to get there. Uh, so he's, like I said, he's, he's had, uh, he's getting a lot of pushback today, uh, even though he got plotted at the beginning because he pushed back against the media, which is always going to be a, it, it, you're, you're going to be able to, uh, get, you know, a good response from, from a grassroots conservative audience when you're talking about the bias that's in the media, because it's. We started out talking about bias. You know, I've I've talked about this many times on the program. It, the, the The media is supposed to be the watchdog of democracy, and we've morphed into the media primarily. Now there there are exceptions to this. There are good people in the media that are doing their job, reporting the facts. But as a group, they were supposed to be the watchdog. They became the lap dog. In other words, they, they cl- climbed up in the laps of progressives because they were in tune with progressive thinking, and now they're the guard dog. They do what they can to protect those who are progressive, even if people who are progressive are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Um, and they're, they're perfectly willing to print every question, every story about Clarence Thomas, when the progressives come after the United States Supreme Court to try to disrupt it because it's conservative, and if they, you know, if if progressives don't win elections, they don't go away. They're not like conservatives. Progressives just find another path, and the path that they're trying to use right now is to disrupt the United States Supreme Court by uh, bringing all these absurd allegations against Clarence Thomas. So this is, you know, it, it it's a um, this it's it's a very difficult problem that we have in the country when our watchdogs become guard dogs for a particular administration because they agree with their policies. All right, um, again, that that's probably enough about the debate last night. Um, if you watched it, I, I you know I did because I feel like that I kind of have an obligation to pay attention. Uh, but there was. No, here's the bottom line: there was nothing coming out of last, last night's debate that's going to change the temperature of this Republican primary race. I don't even think that I, I you know, that you're going to have any movement in the, among the candidates. I think you're still going to have DeSantis and Haley vying for the top spot to be second, um, and then I think you're going to have. Um, if, if you look down the list, it's probably going to be Tim Scott. Um, and then Ramaswamy, and then Chris Christie. And Chris Christie may move up above Ramaswamy. But as far as making a dent in Donald Trump's lead, uh, none of that happened last night. Trump had a rally um, last night down in Florida, in Hialeah, Florida. And one of the main things that happened is he picked up uh, an endorsement from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I mean, it was made from the stage. So this is I mean, people who think that Trump is some kind of political novice, I mean, I hope there's not any people out there who still believe that. But the fact that uh, President Trump would, first of all, not participate in the debate because he would just be a a piñata. I mean, he shows up on that stage because of the size of his lead. They all have to come after him. So because of the size of his lead, he can make the decision – to not show up at the debate, and as long as the American people, the electorate, don't hold that against him, then there's no harm, no foul for him, and that's the calculation that he's made, and he's been right about it. So he does this rally down in Hialeah, uh, and here's just some of the highlights. He said, "quote We're close to having no country at all. We're also close to being in World War III, a war that you've never seen or conceived or thought about, but we're very close. They have." Um, Let's see. They have a hat. I saw it the other day. Trump was right about everything. Well, that's a big statement, but if you think about it, I sort of was right about everything. So it's typical Trump at the rally last night. Um, He talked about Hamas sympathizers. He said, quote, we cannot have an administration that takes foreign policy advice from Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib. Um, Absolutely correct. I mean, and I... It, it's hard to believe that the Democrats haven't turned their back on these on, on the squad yet. Quote, I will also quickly cancel the student visas of all Hamas sympathizers on college campuses, which have been infested with radicalism like never before. Um, Ron DeSantis echoed that. I think Tim Scott said that as well in the debate last night. So, excuse me. So, um, yeah, th- that's pretty much a a uh, standard understanding across the all the Republican candidates that you, we've we've allowed our universities to be radicalized. And the only way that's going to stop is if you take the ones, the 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 ringleaders of the radicalization of the student body, and you just pull their visas. If they want to be radical, they can. They don't need to get their education here in the United States to be someone, and then go be someone who's going to call for the destruction of the United States where they got their education. That doesn't make any sense. Um, President Trump talked about open borders policy. He said this kind of monstrosity you would expect from terrorists in the Middle East, but it's happening right here because of crooked Joe Biden right here in Florida and all over the country. That will change when he wins the presidency, he said. On day one, I will terminate every open borders policy of the Biden administration will begin the largest domestic deportation effort in history. It's so sad that we even have to talk about this. Now, this is going to score... not not that he needs points, but it's going to score a lot of points of points with Republicans and independents because a lot of people are beginning to see the southern border as the number one problem. It was that was close to being the number one problem in the last presidential election. It's It's here we are again, and it's worse. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's a situation where when president Trump talks about taking strong action at the border, if if any of the candidates uh, for Republican nomination, when they do that, that gains them stature, not just in the Republican primary, but with the American people who are beginning to, to open their eyes and see this as a serious problem. Uh, Trump goes on. He says not one penny for vaccine mandates. Quote, I will not give one penny to any school that has a vaccine mandate or a mask mandate. We're going to make America great again. It's not going to take very long. Uh, Number five, he says inflation is a country buster. Quote, Inflation is called a country buster, and it's busting our country right now. You can go back 300 years, and you can see why some great empires failed. Many of them fail because of the word inflation. And finally, here, this is number six, one of the things that he said last night. He talked about the Cuban regime, and he compared it to the Biden regime. He said, quote, just like the Cuban regime, the Biden regime is trying to put their political opponents in jail, shutting down free speech, taking bribes and kickbacks to enrich themselves and their very spoiled children. Um, And he went on and talked about the fact that he reiterated that the 2020 election was stolen. Um, I don't know if that's helping him in his court cases, but at this point, I mean, when he took the stand the other day in New York, you you had to know what was going to happen between him and the judge. I mean, and there's, you know, Trump, why hold back, okay? The judge has already said that Trump is guilty of fraud and that Trump business empire is is guilty of inflating the values of the property in a fraudulent way. If the judge has already decided that and you're going to testify, just why does it matter what you say? I mean, he was, you know, Trump went after the judge. He went after um, um, the prosecutor. He... And and really, I, I'm sure his attorneys would rather that he hold back on that, but I think they've probably even come now to the conclusion that this is a foregone conclusion as far as this judge is concerned. Uh, the only thing that's going to uh, be able to make a difference is an appeal, and uh, so why not just get on the stand and unload? And that's exactly what Trump did. And that's what he's doing at the rallies here. I mean, he's doubling down. On his belief that the election was stolen and I think he's probably just to the point that look I'm I'm leading by between 50 and 60 points for the Republican nomination uh, I, I'm leading in the early primary states by 30 points and I'm I'm not gonna worry about these legal issues I'm just gonna double down and we're gonna settle this thing at the ballot box not in a courtroom I I, I believe that's the conclusion that he's reached at this point Um, All right, let's talk about critical theory. Uh, I promised we were going to do a deep dive today and we're going to have to get into it in order to get through what I want to share with you. Uh, We're probably going to have to put off the mental health discussion, the number of teenagers that are showing up in emergency rooms, maybe until Monday. We might get to it tomorrow, but um, I can tell I'm not going to get to it today because it's a big story and we've got to talk about how we intervene in these teenagers' lives and what is it about our culture that's creating so many teens that are depressed and willing to just end it all? Um, it's a terrible problem. It has been since before COVID, and it's only been exacerbated during COVID and po- COVID and post-COVID. All right, critical theory. Um, critical theory is the foundational thinking for progressives in this country, and they're pushing it to the point that they want it to be the dominant philosophy in the United States. And if they succeed, it will destroy our country because you cannot have a country operating under the tenets of critical theory that holds itself together. It will blow apart. Critical theory has gone from an abstract thing in academia to a ubiquitous way of thinking that if you pay attention, it's in movies, it's Making its way into the church. It's in education. It is part of everything in our culture today. Uh, The attack of Hamas on innocent Jews in Israel, that includes some of the most brazen and vile actions against humanity seen since the Holocaust. I think a lot of people were shocked by this, uh, by seeing the evil that was committed. Maybe we were not so shocked to see the hatred of Hamas against the Jews because we become accustomed to Islamic extremism being violently expressed against Israel, the United States, and the West in general. But, but And we're accustomed, of course, to Iran, Iraq, and Syria saying disturbing things about Israel and supporting terrorist activity. But after the attacks, we started seeing huge demonstrations across countries dominated by Western culture. We saw demonstrations that were anti-Semitic and pro-Hamas in London, Paris, New York, L.A., Washington, D.C. I think a lot of people were shocked to see our elite universities explode with hatred toward Jews and support of Hamas. Thousands mar- marched in Washington in support of Palestinians and against Israel, and they've left behind, if you look at the, the, um, the route they took to the White House to start shaking on the gate— uh, they left behind a trail of anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian graffiti. They wrapped the statue of Benjamin Franklin and others in uh, 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 Palestinian flags. Uh, so, how do we rank? How does how do we see this rank anti-Semitism being expressed so by so many people in the West? And that's where we see the influence of critical theory, where everything is seen through the prism of oppressors and the oppressed, the powerful and the powerless. And that's how you can link all of this anti-Semitism and all of this vitriol and hatred toward the West in favor of Islamic extremism. It comes through critical theory. Critical theory is the common denominator that gives us groups like queers for palestine, feminists for palestine, abortion rights and advocates for palestine. Israel, even though the Jews have been persecuted for generations, think about it, through pogroms, that was local that would be local attempts to wipe out Jewish populations in uh, as opposed to an entire country in isolated areas by the holocaust, by constant terrorist attacks through declared Uh, intifadas, individual terrorists, suicide bombers, constant rocket attacks. I mean, you've got all of that. And even though they should be classified as an oppressed people, they are classified as oppressors because they're disproportionately well-educated and wealthy. And, of course, Israel is the most powerful country in the Middle East. And because of their military, because of the IDF, their technology, they're considered to be an oppressor. Therefore, no matter what Hamas may do, they're considered justified by those who embrace critical theory because they're the powerless. No matter what Israel did to warn citizens they should leave to avoid being caught up in the war, no matter how horrible and heinous the murders committed by Hamas or how they treat their own people as human shields, Israel is still the bad guy and Hamas are the good guys if you apply critical theory to the equation. Now, when you go back and look at the roots of critical theory, you have to look I'll go all the way back to Karl Marx. He was the original critical theorist. His ideas about economics is not what critical theorists are focused on, though, today. When you talk about the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, he's talking about power. He's talking about the rise of the working class, the proletariat, to overthrow the bourgeoisie and then to have a communist state. That is, you get diversity and equity, and equity as described by uh, critical theory is equal outcomes, not equal opportunity. The only way you get equal outcomes is you have some kind of outside force in the culture or society to ensure equal outcomes, which keeps some people down at the cost of elevating others. So this, this is critical theorists focused ab- on ideas about the power. Um, how oppressors and the oppressed rise. Marx didn't use the term critical theory. It's coined by a group of scholars that came out of the Frankfurt School in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. Now, when Hitler came to power, they fled Germany, and they... Uh, came to the United States and landed at Columbia University. They stayed until about 1949, these scholars, and they inculcated a generation with their ideas about critical theory, and then they moved back to Frankfurt once Germany was, we were through the war and Hitler was out of power. Today, critical theory is the umbrella category for a whole host of offshoots, We've already talked about it, critical uh, uh, queer theory, critical feminist theory, post-colonial studies. When you hear somebody talking about post-colonial studies, that's critical theory. That's talking about any uh, colonization by the United States or by Great Britain or by any country. That's an oppressor going after the oppressed. Uh, Intersectional feminism, things like that. It's all about how power works in our culture to create the oppressors and the oppressed winners and losers that dominate the and and the the marginalized. This is, this is where it all comes comes from. Now, there are four big ideas in critical that are expressed in critical theory. And I'm going to give them to you and we're going to talk about them one at a time quickly. Uh, they are social the social binary, uh, hegemonic or hegemonic power, lived experience and social justice. Those are the four foundational ideas. Those four ideas are expressed in our culture in critical race theory and also primarily in critical queer theory. And and let me say this. You know, we may think we've seen the peak of crazy in our culture, but wait until the generation of high school and college students now that are getting fed all of this in the education system, just wait until they become doctors, scientists, judges, and government leaders in a few years. So this I mean this is scary. This is why we need to be knowledgeable about critical theory, what it is, what it isn't, how it fuels so much of the division that is in our country today. Let's talk about the social binary. It says that society is divided into oppressor groups and oppressed groups along the lines of race, class, gender, Uh, as sexuality, physical ability, nationality, and a host of other identity markers. Uh, Social binary is where you get the LGBTQ+, and the plus stands for ever how many descriptions are currently on the books, and it grows just about every day. Uh, Most people don't believe daily uh, that people are walking around oppressed, but critical theorists redefine the word oppression. It doesn't simply mean tyranny or coercive power uh, or unjust and cruel treatment that's overt. It also includes how the ruling class uses subtle power to force their ideas on normal culture. So that's the social binary. Uh, uh, Hegemonic power is if the ruling class is populated by, uh, by whites, then whites are oppressive and they will create a culture that is oppressive toward blacks in particular, but also other minorities. Men impose their sexist, sexist, patriarchal values on women, and heterosexuals impose their values on those who are homosexual. Then you have ableism, the idea that if you in any way emphasize or value performance, you devalue and discriminate against people with physical, intellectual or psychiatric disabilities. So anyone who's marginalized or is outside of power is a victim of oppression by the oppressors. And that leads us to the third thing, which is lived experience. So is there any way we can overcome the blindness that we've accrued due to oppression? Well, all of us are socialized into these systems of power whether it's white supremacy, transphobia, sexism, patriarchy, ableism, classism, all of that. But if you're a member of an oppressed group, through your lived experience of oppression, you can gain greater access to the truth about reality. You can get what is called a critical conscience. You can be woke, and to be woke is to wake up to the reality of inherent injustice, when, when you're woke, you have the authority to tell other people the reality about society. But if you're privileged, if you're by being white or male or straight or cisgender, then you're blinded by your privilege. So you have both conscious and subconscious reasons to deny the reality of racism and all the other isms. Your only hope is to be led into being woke by someone who is oppressed, and only someone who is oppressed can do that. I mean, it, it, when, you, when you start talking about about this, you have to go back to Kimberly Crenshaw and this idea of intersectionality, which it's about 20 years old now, but it's, it's really become prominent, and intersectionality is defined. Let me pull up. I actually went to the definition so I could give you the uh, dictionary definition of intersectionality. It's the nature of social categoriza- uh, categorizations categorizations, excuse me, such as race, class, and gender as they apply to given individual or groups regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. Now, let me give you an example of how this works. It's actually a numbers system in a a way because um, let's start with race. If you're black, then you're in an oppressed group. If you're a black gay person, you're, you've got you move from a one to a two because you're in a you're in two oppressed groups. If you're in and how how being black and being homosexual intersect is a, a, it gives you more uh, credence when you speak into the culture about oppression. Um, and then let's say that you're black, you're gay, and you're female. Now you've got three oppressive characteristics. Uh, Let's say you're black, you're female, you're gay, and you're coming from a country where you've been in the minority and been oppressed. And let's say that you're black, you're female, you're gay, you're coming from an oppressed country, and you've got some type of disability. Now you are an expert on who the oppressors are and who the oppressed. And if you step up and say something in our culture, you cannot be corrected You cannot be argued with because your lived experience gives you the right to speak about things in a way that the privilege, which would be me as a white male, cisgender, um, as a a straight man, I can't understand any of that because I have to live the experience to understand it, which is ridiculous because we, we do not have to have the experience to understand what these experiences mean or to be able to critique them but in critical theory that's the idea and then the fourth thing is social justice which is the elimination of all forms of social oppression based on race class gender sexuality and so forth so this social justice is actually the marxist idea of utopia it's when the proletariat rises up and pushes out the bourgeoisie and you have a classless society and and that's that's the end game for critical theory that also comes over from Marxism, they want a society of diversity, equity, and inclusion, a society where all groups share power and there's no one uh, he- hegemonic, dominant narrative that oppresses people. So <clears throat> when you apply those four ideas to race, you have critical race theory. Excuse me. When you apply these four theory- ideas to sexuality, you get critical queer theory and so on. When you apply them to education, you get critical pedagogy. That is, credit, credit. Um, uh, excuse me, critical pedagogy, which is the teaching of critical theory to generations. I mean, it, it perpetuates this idea, and that's what we're seeing on our university campuses right now. Um, primary, the big public university campuses. I promise, nothing like this is on the campus at North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference. Critical race theory started in the domain of legal scholars for a few years. Um, but it what began as a legal theory is now practiced throughout the academy. It's in healthcare, sociology, history is being rewritten to conform to critical race theory. That's where you get the 1619 project. It's a rewriting of American history to inject race into so that it can you can say with a straight face that America is a racist country. It had a racist beginning, and we've never overcome that. And that's what you have to believe if you buy into critical theory. Critical theory um, applied to race says racism is normal, it's permanent, it's pervasive. And, and, you know, how can you say that? Well, in the same way that critical theorists have redefined oppression, they've redefined racism. Whites impose their values on people of color in subtle ways that disadvantages black people. Racism isn't perpetuated by individual racial hatred. It's hidden behind terms that white people use to appease African Americans and other minorities, but they are always trying to keep them out of power. Now that's 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 critical race theory. And what it, it what it denies about biblical justice is the idea of personal responsibility for our sin. If we're racist, that's a heart problem. It's not going to be fixed by forcing people into these categories by critical theory. It's going to be fixed when a person's life is changed by the power of Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. And yet Critical theory doesn't leave any room for that, and and critical theory is moving is finding its way into the church. Um, I think on one program next week, where we're, we're going to talk about some of the reasons that Christians are being brought into this idea of critical theory, and they're actually finding some common cause with it. Um, I, I it's it, it's unbelievable to me, but it is happening, and so we'll t- we'll. It's going to take a future show to talk about all that. Um, So there are a lot of terms that you're going to hear in critical theory. Whiteness, which is a set of normative privileges granted to white-skinned individuals. White privilege, that's unearned advantages that accrue by white people by virtue of their whiteness. Uh, White supremacy, any belief, behavior, or system that supports, promotes, or enhances white privilege. And, And see, white supremacy you usually think about, oh, you're talking about the KKK. You're talking about uh, horrible things like the skinheads and the Nazis and the, nope, I'm talking about anybody who isn't woke. If you are not woke, if you've not been properly trained by someone who is oppressed, you are an oppressor and therefore guilty of white supremacy. Uh, white complicity is another term you'll hear. That's white people through the practices of whiteness and by benefiting from white privilege, contribute to the maintenance of systemic racial injustice. White equilibrium, it's the belief system that allows white people to remain comfortably ignorant. So if you hear somebody talk about white um, equilibrium, they're accusing a white person of being ignorant of the systemic racism. That, so they'll just label you as, as being uh, infected with white equilibrium, white fragility, the inability and unwillingness of white people to talk about race due to the grip that whiteness has on their life, the idea of the, the term of whiteness. All right, that's critical race theory in a nutshell. And like I said, on a future program, we'll talk about why it's become so per- per- uh, pervasive and why that it's infiltrating the church. I want to conclude by telling you that Truth in Politics and Culture is being brought to you today by the McCravey, Newland, Sturkey, Clarity law firm, McCraven, McCravey, Newly, Sturkey. Uh, I am, I've am. i got to slow down here a little bit. McCravey, Newland, Sturkey, and Clarity have a proven track record of settling and trying cases in South Carolina. Uh, they have over 25 years of experience and knowledge that has helped thousands of people just like you so. If you are looking for experienced and successful personal injury lawyers in South Carolina who will fight for you, go to McCraveyLaw.com to find out how the McCravey, Newland, Sturkey, Clarity Law Firm will exceed your expectations. They'll do that because they know South Carolina law and they know how to get results for you. Call them today for a free consultation, 833-245-6565 today you can get a free consultation. It's a great way to find out if they can help you in whatever the the problem that you may have if you're if you're in need of a personal injury lawyer. So, it, you need to you need to call them. Let me give you that number again. 833-245-6565 or go to McCravy Law. That's M C C R A V Y Law.com. McCravy, Newland, Sturkey, Clarity Law firm is ready to represent you all right i hope you've enjoyed the program today we're a little bit over time but uh only a couple minutes so no harm no foul tomorrow we'll get into the history of all of the biden activities going all the way back early even while joe biden was a senator before he was vice president so i hope you'll join us for the program god bless you have a great day